On a wide and wondering world, in a wide and wondering galaxy, there lived a mermaid. She was not the only mermaid who dwelled in the deep and dreaming oceans of her world. An entire society of mares shared rule of the sea with the whale sages and the anemone councils, among many others. This particular mermaid had named herself Esarala, which means seeks the stars in the language of tide and foam. Esarala's mothers and sisters and cousins understood the significance of her name, and they sometimes came to discuss it with her. On one such occasion, Esarala sat upon a rock jutting out from the sea, the waves lapping against her coy spotted tail. It was nighttime, and she gazed longingly up at the constellations and the one bright planet that was visible to the naked eye. The stars in those constellations, she knew, were suns, like the one her own planet orbited, a fact that fascinated her, but which none of her relatives found of particular interest. Lightning recap. In The Mermaid Astronaut by Yunhali, the little mermaid goes to the stars. Title says it all. And must pay a price, but it's the little mermaid, so of course. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. It's short story, short podcast. I am Hugo nominated fanzine editor Christopher J. Garcia. And I am uh, best person nominated by my cat, <laughs> Christy Baxter. I'm 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 gonna lose to my husband in the end. I know it, but it's an honor just to be nominated. Weren't you also Wizarding World's best smile three years in a row? Well, you know, I, I like to be modest. And, <laughs> I, you, you know, you know, you know. Of course, I know. <laughs> um, it is so great to be here today. It's been a heck of a week. But, you know, Christy, I made a little time to read a story. And I'm going to, using my mind bullets, shoot what it is over to you. And you'll tell the rest of the people what I've been reading. Ow, those things hurt. Damn. Um, we read uh, The Mermaid Astronaut by Yunali. That's right. And this is sort of a hard left turn from last week. <laughs> it's, it is at once darker, more personal, heavier, and I would honestly say a bit more sentimental. At the same time, it is easily the most beautiful of the stories we've read so far, as far as language goes. Yeah, the language is just so incredibly evocative that there are moments when you just have to sit back and just kind of revel in it. It's, it's wonderfully, wonderfully evocative. And there are so many of those little surprise moments that I love. Those are my little, my little pet moments in the stories that we read. And yeah, it's just, it's so beautiful. And I think, I think that's the big, the big challenge of a story like this. You're, you're taking A, The Little Mermaid, B, a story of the sea, C, C, a story of somebody going into space for the first time. There has to be beauty. There has to be beauty. And you have to describe it. You have to give those words to the reader 
uh, at least give them something. And so that would probably, for me, it would be the most daunting would be, I would feel like none of my words would be able to do justice to what was in my head. Yeah. And I think one of the beautiful things about it is it's also a first contact story. Like it's a whole bunch of things all put together uh, into a story that is, I would argue it is a science fiction fantasy uh, in that order um, <laughs> because the story is of her experiencing of the world, but it is its motivation, its push comes from the fantastical elements and it has so many markers of traditional fantasy from uh, the enchanted knife to the witch to the uh, the girl who longs and dreams for a place far away. Uh, but it's also stories like this that to me show the veil between science fiction and fantasy is so thin. And here, just a couple of minor changes. If you turn the, the witch into a scientist and the knife into nanobots, it's a 100% science fiction story, except for or, mermaids. Or, or lasers. Don't forget lasers. Oh, laser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's make a human out of this mermaid. I've got a lightsaber. Let's get to it. Yeah. And I think that's part of the beauty of this story is that it is, it's a little bit of everything. It's a little calling back. It's a little moving the genre forward. It's a little bit uh, a family story. It's a little bit a coming of age story. It is a dreamer realizing their dream. It's all of these things at once in a very tight package. And it's a paying the price story. You know, we have this, uh, this story of somebody, a, a dreamer who gets to realize their dream, but you always, you have to wake up sometime and uh, come back to reality. And she does very hard. You know, she, she goes out beyond her, her mermaid world and she explores space and she goes to, to spaceports and she sees stars and nebulas and just nebulae, I guess, all kinds of, of beauty and wonder, uh, not realizing that she's, a, she's kind of paying the price all along, which is kind of the, the, the knife to the heart or the, or the flipper as it were. <laughs> um, and it's you know the, the fact that she's aging at a different rate than her sister back at home and that her sister will be you know could, could potentially already be dead that the fact that she's paying the price all along and every second that she spends is more of a price is really brilliant painfully brilliant mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the things about this story that is so impressive one it's a bit of a tearjerker, <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, the The thing is you are set up for that. And it's not, this is the thing that stories like this could super easily be incredibly manipulative. It is setting you up for the realization that achieving your dreams eventually will kill all those around you. And in this case, it is so well done. You get so much around these characters, but you also get a satisfying ending that is so powerfully written. I mean, I'm just, I'm going to break my own rule and read part of the, the end here. Uh, what I did not know before I left, Esarala said, 
is that every planet is traveling through space and every star and every galaxy and more beyond in the great celestial dance. I wanted to visit other worlds and so I have, but now I understand the motions of celestial bodies. I don't need to leave home in order to journey through the universe. Yeah. I know. Oh, but at the same time, that doesn't try and bring that about. It just happens to do so while expressing something that is so essential to a story. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's not, you know, that that manipulation could have come about if if this was, I think, the only purpose, if the if the destination was the only point and not the journey, but the journey was the point and the destination we just happened to land there i feel like and and it was it was inevitable at the same time it was also evitable the evitability is is solid yeah. <laughs> yes solid evitability <laughs> and i love we get the characters in here so well um and in many ways i would argue that this is while this is Esarala's story i think it is a story of a universe that is populated with these fantastical creatures and even makes the very smart point of that uh, very early on when we're told that they first meet the uh, people of the MERS, uh, MER people, that's what they're called, <laughs> um, that they're all so different, that there's so much variety among them. Some of them walked on two legs and some on six. Some of them had six fingers on their hands and some had tentacles instead. Some of them had friendly waving eye stalks and others none at all. I mean, just like in that little paragraph, she has said so much about the entirety of the characterization of this world and how it's not just the universe as we understand it. It's not just the universe as science fiction has traditionally put it, where it's everyone is, is some form of bipedal with various colored skin. It's far richer than that. Yeah, it definitely, it, it stretches beyond some of the, some of the cliches we see sometimes. And it definitely, you get a little anxious at first. Uh, because the, the history of, of literature all too often has creatures who are different coming into contact with each other and it doesn't go well. Um, and at least at first, you know, but it is, you know, the, the, the mayor people have interpreters and uh, there's, a, there's a sense of cooperation. There's a sense of not even tolerance, but just like, yeah, you're cool. You know, like it's not even tolerance feels like it's, it's, it's beneath what this is. This is, you know, it, an acceptance and a not, not caring about, you know, differences. And so that's sort of beautiful that it, it doesn't, you know, you think for a second that it might go there and that would be fine if it, if it did, but it's, it's nice. And it's a sense of relief to have it be like, oh no, this is a nice world. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is I look for in a story is loving descriptions of food. And one of the most fantastical paragraphs in history is about how they had this grand feast featuring their best offerings that were all super rich and different and strange. 
And I was so excited. And the line and some concoctions that the MERS had no word for other than delicious. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> I made a paella yesterday. That was fantastic. But it, this, <laughs> this is better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, are, there are sometimes, I was, actually, I was actually just thinking about this recently when it, it had popped up in my own writing. There's sometimes when you can tell when a writer is hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that it's not organic to the story or anything, but, and you can also, you can gauge the level of hunger. If this had gone on for one or two more paragraphs, you would, you would know that the writer was like, damn, I need to eat some lunch, you know, because <laughs> I have, I have written out an entire like breakfast in great detail and been like, hmm, yeah, um, I'm starving. My stomach is eating itself. That might be why this is happening. It's almost like a symptom. So yeah, that that can sometimes give you a little hint into what the writer is dealing with at that moment. But yeah, um, I I do the, the descriptions and stuff like that. I mean, and yeah, some sometimes we have no words for things other than delicious. For when you have something that is just such a wonderful, perfect combination. Of, of of intermingling flavors and textures and everything that that's just that moment where it's just like I, I wish I had other words I'm a writer I feel like I shouldn't have other words but delicious is all I got <laughs> and I think one of the other things that's really interesting it's particularly with the way things are described is much of the stuff great description to are everyday things like food like uh, what it takes to maintain your place on the ship it's all of these sort of of almost mundanalia that is just very, very plain. But at the same time, it's utterly important to life. It's utterly important to how these different cultures can interact with one another. And ultimately, I think that's what the story is about. I think it is ultimately about how cultures that are theoretically incompatible can come together. But at some point during that connection, a price has to be paid. And Esarala pays it. Yeah, yeah, she really, she really does. And I think I'm, I'm going to have to read the, the description of the, the stars because I think all those descriptions are building up because you know you're going to have to get it. You know you're going to get it. It's going to come. And so there's this anticipation and they're building and building you up. In her leisure hours, she sat by the viewports of the starship and gazed at the stars streaking by. She saw wonders up close, from the dust forges where stars are born to the hot glow of the accretion disks around black holes. She saw planets of different colors spinning like enchanted beads and their diadems of moons. And all these visions reminded her of her sister Kiyovasa, who had helped her attain her heart's desire and the fact that they were now parted. But she was not sorry. Not yet. Those two words are doing a lot of work and they earn whatever pay they get. <laughs> Of last Correct. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that 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 paragraph in particular expresses the entire not only the entire point of the story, but the entire emotional point of the story. And I think that just that's a sign of a writer who knows what they're doing. Yeah, and it also connects Esarella's journey here to Kiovasa back home. So that the two are inextricably intertwined, which I think you need in order for one to so deeply affect the other. Yeah, no question. And I think Kiyavasa's journey is really interesting because 
she is willing to take the steps that her sister does, but in the end doesn't and has a life that is the life of a person. And when Esarala returns, what she is given is a limited view of that life beyond that she could have theoretically had. And that has so much power connected to it. And I think that, you know, as a character, Esarala is great because she takes a journey. And that means we have to follow her. Kiyovasa is the journey that to me has more emotional resonance because not only was she left behind, but she gets now to know what she missed. And the point of view that her sister brings very, very pointedly, I think, that last line, the very, very last line of the entire story, uh, I don't understand Kiyovasa said again, but I look forward to learning in the time that remains to me. How human is that? It is when you've come to the point where you know, I can't experience too much more, but I can still learn from your experience. Booyakacha. Yeah, that is so, that is so the human experience. And it also is in a way, and I'm sorry, this, there's no, there's no way for this not to be punny. So I apologize in advance, but in a way, Kiyovasa gets the best of both worlds. I see what you did there. Yeah, I could <laughs> I sat here and I thought, I was like, there's gotta be another way to say that. Yeah, I'm sure there is, but nothing that's quite so like immediate. So I, I, you know what? I did it. I just did it. Yeah. I don't know. There might be something fishy about that pun, but I don't know what it is. (laughs) Well, you know, there's a sliding scale of puns. This is a tale that just will continue going on. Um, (laughs) But I think one of the fascinating things also is that A story like this can be read so many different ways. And I think that that is why a story gathers a strong enough following to end up on a Hugo ballot, because it appeals to so many different aspects of, you know, if you like a good adventure story, hey, here's some adventure story. If you like a good uh, emotional sister bonding story, hey, here's a good emotional sister bonding story. If you're a big fan of snakes. (laughs) We've got snakes. Yeah. (laughs) So I think this is, I think that this is a story that is a prototypical Hugo contender. And I think this is going to do very well, if not win, because of that, the beauty of the language to appeal to the lit nerds, the beauty of the story to appeal to the adventure nerds, and most of all, the fact that uh, the podcast version of it that they have on Beneath Ceaseless Skies is so good. Mm, I did. I should have listened to that. I saw it, and I, I, for some reason, I didn't listen to it. But I really should have. So I'm, I'm going to now, <laughs> but just to see how much better they did the reading than I did. <laughs> just, you know. Do you like podcasts? Um, they're all right. They're okay. I guess. <laughs> I like Joe Rogan. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, both of our listeners who listen to Joe Rogan are now turning off. <laughs> yeah. So Chris, you got any more thoughts on this one? Um, I really liked it. And it's making my imaginary voting all the more difficult. So it's this this is getting to be a harder and harder decision every week. Although I must say, uh, I'm a mermaid person. I'm a mermaid person. I, my thesis novel in grad school was steampunk mermaid. So uh, <laughs> it's all right there. <laughs> wait, 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 really? 
Steampunk yeah, Mermaid. Yeah, yeah. Steampunk Mermaid. We'll have to talk. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a mermaid person. They may have gotten to me just with the mermaids and then doing such a good riff on the little mermaid where there's it, it's it's hard it's hard as hell to pull out the the oldest stories that are so well known among us and so often we we do riffs on and versions of and make it and have unexpected moments it's so hard and that is done very well here so i i appreciate not it's not just because it's a mermaid story it's because it's a mermaid story done well which is hard as hell that's my you're right thought. you're absolutely right there hey christy Yes. Ask me what story we're going to read next week. Uh, so, Chris, are we possibly going to read Metal Like Blood in the Dark by T. Kingfisher? Yes, we are. Hi, Ursula. Good to see you. Um, <laughs> yes, we're going to read Metal Like Blood in the Dark by T. Kingfisher. And I am psyched. This is, again, my first interaction with this story. So I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm excited, too, seeing your exci excitement has generated some excitement in me. You know what that's called? Being um, a hype man. Oh, yes, you are a hype man. You'd be a perfect hype man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think we found your calling. I know I found my calling. Now <laughs> I guess you someone to pay me for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, in that case, I think this has been Short Story. Short Podcast.